Thousands of NATO troops are on exercise in Romania. This will be the first line of any, uh, any defence against any possible aggression, wherever it's coming from. Gaddafi's son has been freed, and who's hiding him now? And Putin on TV, why he's been speaking to filmmaker Oliver Stone. NATO troops have been taking part in a large-scale exercise in Romania aimed at testing the alliance's ability to respond quickly to a crisis on its southeastern flank. Exercise Noble Jump has been led by the UK, with two battalions of British troops taking part. BFBS reporter Simon Newton was there. On the Chinku training area, a US Army Apache helicopter attacks an enemy position. This is Exercise Noble Jump, a test of NATO's very high readiness joint task force, a 5,000-strong multinational land brigade that would spearhead the Alliance's response to any attack on a member country. Here to watch the manoeuvres, UK Defence Secretary Sir Michael Fallon. This will be the first line of any, uh, any defence against any possible aggression, wherever it's coming from. This is the immediate reaction force. But behind the reaction force, and this already comprises uh, some eight different uh, uh, armed forces here today, behind this reaction force, of course, stand the, the other forces of, of NATO ready to come in. But this is the first line. Overhead, Romanian MiGs and RAF typhoons bomb the mock enemy. For NATO, this show of togetherness comes at a testing time. President Trump has criticised some member states for not paying their way. And for the first time, the commitment of the US to NATO has been questioned. Mr Fallon says the president's demands have been a wake-up call for the alliance. Well, you've seen NATO responding to the president's call. Over 20 NATO members are now increasing their budgets. Romania itself is now going to meet the 2% target. We already meet it. But you've seen uh, since the Warsaw and the Wales summit uh, an increasing focus on modernising NATO, making sure it's ready to respond to any aggression. With three Russian divisions now parked on NATO's eastern flank, Noble Jump aims to test how quickly the alliance could respond. And while commanders here diplomatically play down the threat from Moscow, it is Russia's ambitions, particularly in the Baltics, that are causing most concern. And why exercises like this are now more frequent and, says NATO, increasingly vital. Simon Newton, BFBS in Romania. Well, BFBS Defence analyst Christopher Lee is with me. Hello, Christopher. This isn't the only British deployment in Romania. For the past three months, four RAF fast jets have been deployed there too. It is part of something which has been going on or began really with the uh, the, uh, the Russian incursion into Ukraine. If you look at the state of Europe, especially Eastern Europe uh, now, uh, compared with what it was, let's say, about five years ago, the whole of the tapestry of British, NATO, American-led coalition of forces has changed. And it's not only changed, it's, it's, it's set up a sort of uh, almost an aggressive p positioning. It's saying, look, Russia, and also look, NATO allies, we're now operating almost a monthly NATO uh, uh, exercise programme in the Baltic. We're down here in, in, in Romania, and Romania ain't far from Ukraine. 
we're operating here and we're operating forward from, from where we were. It's not that long ago since the countries we're now operating in, operating with, and also calling into NATO and giving them positions in NATO, were part of the Warsaw Pact. And yeah. that is what's changed. And that is what, for example, the, the half squadron uh, of tornadoes uh, was all about. That's what uh, was going on in NATO today. All about. You heard Mr. Fallon say, this is the front line. Never used to be. It used to be the VASA. It's interesting how you say um, it's almost aggressive, this kind of deployment. Of course, they would be at pains to say it's deterrence rather than a threat in some kind of way, although the Russians do think it's provocation. How, what kind of impact do you think this is having? It has two impacts. One, it has the impact on the, on the uh, if you will call them for the moment, NATO members for a start, because they think... This is taken seriously. Our security has been taken seriously. And the person that uh, is is really bringing about the supposed or the promised increase in NATO spending, for example, is not Mr. Trump. It's Mr. Putin. And what he is doing is far more... People are getting up and saying, well, we put a bit, put a bit more money into it. But the most important point, uh, the Russians see this as being aggressive. And let's turn it around just a little bit. Just supposing it was going on on this scale. Does it escalate on the, or other, on the other side of the border? We would think it was a, a, a aggressive. Do you think it escalates what? tensions? Uh, no, I don't think it does. Uh, I don't think it escalates it because uh, it goes that far and everything is explained. But what it does, it actually says to, if you like Russia, but also to your NATO partners, it says, this is how ready you are. And also, these are the weaknesses that we've got in our own systems, and that's the most important part, I think, of the exercise that's going on in Romania today. And do you see these exercises as being open-ended? They'll be going on for perhaps decades? Uh, they have always gone on in some sort of way. But at this level, I mean. Uh, at this level, uh, you can only do it as long as you've got, A, the money to do it, the equipment to do it, um, and these th things do change, and then you get the political climate changes. If the political climate uh, sort of uh, soothes down, you will have the ability to do it again, to bring up the readiness state. I think the readiness state is, is the highest that I've actually seen in 20-odd years. What do you think the, the British contingent, what kind of contribution can they make? Do they have a, a unique contribution to make? Well, they have two or, uh, two or maybe three uh, contributions. The first contribution they have to make is the fact they've got the, they've got the gear and they've got the formations. They've also got probably the best um, uh, command systems in the whole of European NATO uh, uh, to do. And the other thing which they have to do, for the moment at least, they've got a, a government which is supplying enough money to keep this thing going. For how long that goes on, who knows? With Still to come, the Putin interviews, what did he say to Oliver Stone? And... 350 years since one of the Royal Navy's most embarrassing defeats. Colonel Gaddafi's son has been released by militia in Libya. Saif al-Islam Gaddafi was held for six years by the Abu Bakr al-Siddiq battalion militia in the western town of Zintan. The 44-year-old was captured in November 2011 after three months on the run following the end of his father's rule. His father was assassinated. The UN-backed government have condemned his release and now the International Criminal Court has called for his arrest. Well, Mary Fitzgerald is a researcher specialising in Libya and she joins me now. Hello, Mary. What can you tell us about this man? 
Well, Saif al-Islam was widely considered to be uh, Gaddafi's heir apparent when the uprising against Gaddafi began in February 2011. Uh, Saif had uh, tried to carve out a, a as a, as a reformist within the regime, but all of that was kind of pushed to the side when he uh, firmly supported his down on uh, those uh, protesters in early 2011. That basically cost safe a lot of his credibility, uh, first of all, but also um, left him vulnerable to to charges later on uh, in terms of crimes uh, against humanity. And there is an ICC arrest warrant for him related to that at the moment. Over the last six years, he has been held in a small mountain town uh, called Zintan in, in western Libya. And uh, we've had several um, incidences where uh, there were claims that he had been released or was about to be released and it all came to, to nothing. That is why a lot of, that is the reason why a lot of Libyans um, this week are, are quite skeptical about the claims that he has been um, released, even though the, those uh, reports appear to be more uh, substantial than those before. But many Libyans are basically saying they want to wait and see uh, if evidence is forthcoming in the form of pictures or videos showing he has actually been um, released uh, from, from captivity. Why might there be reports that he has been released if, if he hasn't? Um, well, this so this is a, a good question because last year there were um, a lot of reports, including claims from one of his lawyers saying that he had been released and, uh, and that was not the case. But as I said, this time around, because of the the flood of statements from various elements in the, in the town of Bintan. There, the military council there, the municipal council, um, are both unhappy with what they say is his release, and also the fact the UN-backed government has has condemned the release would suggest that he has indeed um, been uh, been released. There's a lot of uh, speculation in Libya over his current whereabouts. Um, some people uh, thought that he would perhaps head to eastern Libya. His mother's family is, is from the town of Beda in eastern Libya. But I think it makes more sense for him to head to southern Libya, where you have a number of tribes that um, remain loyal to, to the former regime. And they will um, not just give him a refuge, but allow him to, to build some kind of support base. Because is uh, from from interlocutors uh, some of safe interlocutors is that he would like to to play a role in in Libya in the future but what that role might be is is another question because mm. he remains a, an extremely controversial figure amongst Libyans Christopher Lee um, here's a man painted as the by the West as a good guy that now he's wanted by the International Criminal Court and he could potentially be playing a political role in Libya in the future mm. and it, it, it was it was great great shots of him, great photographs of him, uh, interviews with him. He looked straight out of LSE, which is the sort of image that people wanted to, uh, to have him. Next thing, crimes against humanity, although whether that ever gets there, it doesn't matter. It is a reflection of how we see main characters in, uh, if you like, conflicts, which we don't always follow as closely as we might. A perfect example might be the, the image of the, uh, the president of, of, of Egypt how we actually saw him, the heroic figure of Moshe Dayan in the, in, the, in the June War. And so in what I call the West, images, we make presumptions on very, very little information. And that, and, but we then make big diplomatic and political decisions based on it. Mary Fitzgerald, where do you think Saif al-Islam is and who might be protecting him? Well, I, I think, um, you know, if he is released, then it's, it's likely that he is 
in southern Libya. It makes more sense for him to go there just in terms of the, the tribes in the south that remain uh, loyal to the idea of the former regime that supports still um, the Gaddafi family. And they can basically offer him a refuge and allow him to reach out to those tribes and, and try and build a support base that could propel him to some public role in, in Libya in, in the future. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense for him to say go to Cairo or Oman, uh, Cairo, does appear we've lost Mary for a moment there. Christopher, with, with the release, assuming it is all true, um, what do you think the implications are for Libya as a country? Well, the uh, first thing, you, you, it, it shows how uh, Libya is divided. In fact, tri-divided, if, that, if that's possible. Hmm. And the fact that who would want it put, to put it around that he has been released. And there is this thing that started off uh, with the Turag, the people that actually protected his father, uh, that he is ours, that you have promised. And it may be that he go. It, it, the question that has to be answered by Libya, if it has an effect, is to say what political part and who is the political backing that would go behind him. And that is yet undecided. What are the state of relations between the UK and Libya at the moment? Uh, it's very difficult because you've got the United Nations uh, official uh, government as it stands in Tripoli. Uh, and, and, and the British still support that. And don't forget that Britain under uh, David Cameron had an enormous part to play in the removal of, uh, of Gaddafi, or they didn't want the outcome, perhaps, but in the in removal. So Britain has, uh, in, in Libya, there is a, a very definite, clear idea of what Britain and the United States and the French, who led Sarkozy, uh, led the attack, really, or designed the attack on Libya in the first place, and on Gaddafi. So we are part of triumphant which may not, in the long term, be to our advantage. And it's got an awful lot of oil. Mm. Christopher, stay with us. And our thanks to Mary Fitzgerald. Now, on this day last week, Britain went to the polls and returned a hung parliament. It wasn't supposed to happen that way, was it? Where are we now? And while defence wasn't an issue, the military has a view on this. Christopher, what is the military's view on this? Perhaps surprising, because you normally get to these situations, you say, OK, how is this going to affect the military? Right. You say, are we going to have Trident? Are we going to have two aircraft carriers? Are we going to have etc.? If you go to the chiefs of staff and you look at them traditionally, and certainly now, the main concern when a government is at this stage, such as a hung parliament and therefore unnecessarily uh, in a difficult position over elections and also therefore uh, over debates, the military are bothered more than anything else about stability. They do not like having an unstable or an uncertain uh, uh, political government. So and just that is very important. To anecdotally, uh, moving around as you do in these kind of circles, uh, what kind of things are people Squares, saying? Actually. <laughs> Squares, actually. Squares, though. <laughs> Whichever. Yeah. Um, no, it, it becomes important because it, it, the chiefs of staff are not the old... Um, uh, styles of G Steve's chiefs of staff that you would have had just with Pug Ismay and people like that just after the war, etc. These people are very sharp. Uh, and if you, you go and talk to the present uh, uh, chief, uh, uh, chief of the general staff, you're talking to somebody who could be in, uh, a, a CEO in any big organisation understands that you've got an army, you've got to actually run it as if, on, uh, as, as if you were running the biggest organisation in the world. They want political support for what they do. When an army goes to war, it doesn't go to war because it thinks the time is right. It goes to war because you've got uh, the politicians sending it to war. What we have seen 
during the past 20 years, the army or the, or, or the forces going to war and then suddenly realising they hadn't got the political uh, backing nor the political foundation for the conflict they'd been sent to. Mm. So we go to Iraq and nobody knows how to get out of it. It's that sort of thing. What they want more than anything else is stability and the whole political thing at Westminster has settled down. And on the subject of stability, the coalition with it, that's looming with the DUP, um, we heard John Major saying that it could affect the stability of the Northern Ireland peace process. What's your take on that? I actually don't believe the peace process, as people imagine it, actually exists. Once 1998 uh, sort of, uh, and the whole thing had uh, progressed, it moved into another phase. You had, you know, had Ian Paisley and Marty McGuinness, known as the Chuckle Brothers. You had people talking to each other, dining with each other, sorting things out with each other you've never seen before. What the future of Northern Ireland and what present Northern Ireland is all about, and also with the DUP, is money. It is simply how to get the best financial deals. You're not going to have the IRA the Alliance Party, the SDLP, trying to screw this all up for for doctrinaire uh, matters, which only damages them. Those days are past. Forget the, these phrases such as the peace process. We've moved on from that. We are in a normal or an abnormal civilised society, but we're there. And a hung parliament, what does that actually mean for security and defence? Uh, se- security and defence? Well, I mean, you, you might pick up something where the DUP will, will withhold its vote, for example, if it goes through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, well, they want they a defence review, don't they? they? They were saying that we're not equipped to defend ourselves well, adequately. That is, yes. Does but, that have any sway at all? Uh, it will have sway because there's a very good example, a reason to have a defence review, and that is that in a couple of years' time there's one due anyway, and there should be one due before there, there, there is an election. So um, the issues that are far more likely to affect, uh, not government, not the way we are governed, but the way they think, is if the DUP turned around and said, listen, there are some people who are trying to prosecute British soldiers for events during the Troubles, that has got to stop. Now, I can't think that the uh, present May government would go too far along the lines to stop that happening. But they might say, yes, we'll come to that and we'll consider it. President Vladimir Putin is the subject of a documentary by the Oscar-winning filmmaker Oliver Stone. The Putin interviews see the Russian leader being questioned by the American director of films such as Platoon and Born on the Fourth of July. Well, the series took two years to make, with Putin being interviewed more than a dozen times. Well, let's talk to the former advisor to the Kremlin, Alexander Nekrasov. Good to speak to you today, Alexander. Why did he do it, Putin? Good, good afternoon. Uh... Well, first of all, I need to tell you that Putin has just finished a four and a half hour TV marathon in Russia, answering questions from people all over Russia. So his exposure, public exposure, is enormous at the moment. And the reason is that Putin is standing for the president in the presidential elections next March. So for some bizarre reason, the Kremlin seems to think they need to promote him and promote him. They do. So this uh, interview, uh, it's actually a four-hour documentary where Oliver Stone is asking all sorts of very easy questions, I would say. And Putin is feeling very grand there and answering him 
in a sort of a patronizing way, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, who are you to ask me this? And then he tells his position on this or that. Now, unfortunately, the interviews don't reveal anything new that we didn't know, apart from the fact that he has grandchildren. We in Russia still don't even know whether he's married or not. So that thing stayed a secret. Um, he was talking about a lot of um, foreign policy issues, about NATO uh, being a threat to Russia, about uh, the West never really liking Russia very much, and so on. Now, as a man, as Putin the man, we didn't learn anything. We saw his office, probably for the first time, the whole of it, all three rooms, and uh, he was driving Oliver Stone around in a car, answering very bizarre questions, by the way, I mean, giving very bizarre answers, sorry, about uh, uh, Ed Snowden being wrong, revealing the NSA secrets. Mm. Now, that I found very interesting, to be honest with you, because I thought the Russian intelligence was having a ball with Ed Snowden. No, it seems the president thinks he was wrong to reveal secrets, and he should have simply uh, resigned from uh, NSA. And... Uh, I, I found it very bizarre. Mm. But um, in any case, the, the message coming from the Kremlin is that Putin is a confident leader who is looking after Russia, who is developing a Russian economy, which is not even growing, but, you know, that's what they say. And, of course, the main question, that he's defending Mother Russia from the West. Now, I have my doubts about the capabilities of the Russian army. Uh, now, Christopher might correct me, but I have strange suspicions that it's not as good as they are telling us. Because in Ukraine, the Russian army failed miserably in eastern Ukraine. Okay, they did well in Crimea, but let's face it, Crimea is 93% Russian, right? Ethnic Russian. So there was no problem there. Mm -hmm. As regards in Syria, I think the Russian success in Syria was greatly exaggerated. But having said all that, um, I mean, in terms of the publicity machine, it does look like it's a bit of success for Putin, doesn't it, with this uh, this four-hour documentary? Um, how is it going down in Russia? Well, it's it's not been uh, yet shown in Russian on Russian central television. The people only getting uh, clips of it from uh, uh, the internet. So uh, you basically can hear Putin talking about very different subjects, you know, from separate clips. So they're going to show it on the 19th of uh, June mm -hmm. in Russia. Mm -hmm. So people uh, only know some of his answers from the uh, those Internet clips. But as regards this marathon, which is the continuation of this uh, Putin's pro pro presentation, I think it was a disaster in PR terms. Mm. And let me explain to you why. I'm a former spin doctor myself and a Kremlin advisor on PR and, uh, you know, all other sorts of things. Now, what came through on this uh, press conference, well, it's not a press conference, question and answer marathon on television, is that people were so desperate, uh, they were calling on the president uh, by phone and saying, Mr. President, we do not know whom to turn to for help. We are desperate. We have no money. We're not paid on time. We have the environment around us. And how do you cope with that? And he's supposed to help them. And he's sort of saying to them, well, I'm going to look into this. Mm -hmm. Excuse me. He built this network. So if the local authorities and even the central government cannot help these people and the president is saying, well, I will help you. 
That means he created a system which doesn't work. And I'm sorry, but I was looking at this marathon mm -hmm. and I thought to myself, this is a huge disaster. Mm -hmm. People I'm will get a completely different signal from that uh, question and answer session. I'm just wondering whether or not the subject of this Russian oppos opposition leader, Alexei Navalny, came up during this phone-in. Uh, just before you answer that, Alexander, Christopher, just remind us who he is and what happened to him. Alexei Navalny is anti-corruption campaigner. That's the simpler way of doing it. Um, <clears throat> he once called the United Party, which is Putin, etc., uh, a party of crooks and thieves. Um, he gets out a lot of the younger uh, vote. There was a just after Christmas, I think it was. There was a uh, there was a, a rally, 120, 130 thousand people, although you you can't check the figures, uh, turned out for him. He has been put in the slammer a couple of times. He was accused of a embezzlement, mm. uh, which apparently stuck. And there's the, the problem here: is in 2018, he in theory cannot stand against Putin for the presidency because he has a criminal record. Um, but he was in the slammer uh, in, in, in jail just a, a few days ago. He was supposed to have got 30, I think it was 30 days, and let him out after six. Um, he is a, is a figurehead, but behind him is a very sharp operation. Alexander Nekrasov, did, did he come up in that uh, phone-in? Well, I must tell you, I might, I might have missed it because I was doing an interview for an, a television channel <laughs> about, about this marathon. But let me, tell you, again. <laughs> when, let, let me tell you something about Navalny. First of all, rumor is in Moscow that he's actually working for the Kremlin. And the reason why is that he suits Putin very well. When any oligarch tries to, you know, get ideas about becoming a polit politician, uh, come, out comes Navalny with a documentary about his corruption. Navalny keeps a lot of government officials, you know, on their toes. And if he was really an, a, a threat to Putin, he'd be busted a long time ago. So the, fact, the fact he's been released is actually a sign that uh, you'd say perhaps evidence well, might well, it be? Well, Kate, l l let's assume this. Navalny has put out a film, a documentary, about Pre Prime Minister Medvedev personal corruption, right? This film went out on the internet and went viral. Would anybody in any country be allowed to do a film like that about a sitting prime minister and get away with it? I doubt it. But Navalny got away with it. Absolutely nothing happened to him. Now, the reason why he was busted this time is because what he did was unacceptable. He uh, basically sent the protesters to mingle with the people who were celebrating Russia Day in the center of Moscow. So they tried to pretend that it was a huge anti-Putin protest, when in reality there was a thousand people shouting Putin is a thief, and all the other people were just celebrating with their children, families, and so on. That is why he went to prison. You know, Alexander, um, you know, when you tell me stories like that, I wonder how you ever know what the truth is and how you ever did in the job you had before. Well, I, I, I always have contacts in Moscow, always had, always will have. And uh, believe me, there are many things which are not what they seem to be, even in Britain, mm, in you, Britain as well. So maybe you could answer the question then, is Vladimir Putin married? Oh, I, I, by the way, I, that's... Not, not that, that I'm interested in any way. <laughs> <laughs> of course you're interested, everybody's interested. Well, according to my information, he's got a girlfriend and uh, allegedly they have a son. 
Mm. Now, uh, well, I'm important I mean, to get the allegedly in there, Alexander. Well, I always do that when it's Putin. You know, yeah. Putin. He's got a nasty, uh, you know, uh, uh, temper. Oh. But uh, <laughs> like all short men, by the way. And and and, and, and <laughs> that's quite a few people insulted, Alexander Nikresov. I mean, we will have to leave it there for for today. Okay. But I look forward to speaking to you again. It's all never right. boring. Thank you, Kate. Now, this week sees commemorations in Kent, marking the 350th anniversary of the raid on Medway, the attack by the Dutch in 1667 is remembered as one of the worst defeats in Royal Naval history. Actually, you wouldn't say one of the worst, would you, Christopher? Maybe one of the most embarrassing. Uh, I think we had more. Uh, we had we had some worse ones than that, quite mm. frankly. Um, it's an interesting time. What happened exactly? Well, you, uh, uh, there were three Anglo-Dutch wars. This is the 17th century, and uh, for example, the. Uh, the, the the Dutch and, uh, and and the English are fighting each other in the East Indies over the future of India and all things like that. And what happened is that the Dutch came up the river or the the, the estuary into into the Medway, but into Chatham. Chatham was the most important naval base, and still should be, frankly. But it was the most important naval base then because it was defending the capital, and they got quite a way up the river, and they attacked the Royal Navy ships that were lying alongside. The reason they were lying onside because they haven't got any money. Mm, and can we draw any parallels at all, do you think, from history there? Well, I'd been around to see the Chancellor, and I would probably say to the Chancellor, listen, you used to be Defence Secretary. Make sure that the Navy's got some money, will you? Well, that is all we have time for today. Tell us what you think. You can tweet us at BFBS SITREP. Never miss an episode. You can subscribe to the show as a podcast. Just search online for BFBS SITREP. I'll be back same time next week. Thanks for listening. From me to Kate Chabot, bye-bye for now. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.